0: There was one called lyubov i have spoken of him to koromena but not to you when that one was killing me it was lyubov who saved me it was lyubov who healed me and set me free he wanted to know about us so i would tell him what he asked and he too would tell me what i asked once i asked how his race could survive having so few women he said that in the place where they come from half the race is women. But the men would not bring women to the forty lands until they had made a place ready for them. Until the men make a fit place for the women? Well, they may have quite a wait. They make the forest into a dry beach, and call that making things ready for the women? They should have sent the women first. They are backward, Selva. They are insane. A people can't be insane. But they only dream and sleep, you said. If they want to dream waking, they take poison so that their dreams go out of control, you said. How can people be any matter? They don't know the dream time from the world time any more than a baby does. Maybe when they kill a tree, they think it will come alive again. No, they understand death very well. Certainly they don't see as we do, but they know more and understand more about certain things than we do. Lyubov mostly understood what I told him. Much of what he told me I couldn't understand. It wasn't the language that kept me from understanding. I know his tongue, and he learned ours. Yet there were things he said I could never understand. He said the humans were from outside the forest. That's quite clear. He said they want the forest, the trees for wood, the land to plant grass on. That, too, is clear to those of us who've seen them cutting down the world. He said the humans are men like us, that we're indeed related, as close kin maybe, as the red deer to the grey buck. It is clear that they want our forests for themselves. They are twice our stature. They have weapons that outshoot ours by far, and fire-throwers, and flying ships. Now they have brought more women and will have children. There are maybe two thousand, maybe three thousand of them here now, mostly in Sornal, But if we wait a lifetime or two, their numbers will double and redouble. They kill men and women. They do not spare those who ask life. They cannot sing in contest. They have left their roots behind them. Perhaps in this other forest from which they came, this forest with no trees. So they take poison to let loose the dreams in them, but it only makes them drunk or sick. No one can say certain whether they're men or not men, whether they're sane or insane, but that does not matter. They must be made to leave the forest, because they are dangerous. If they will not go, they must be burned out of the lands. If we wait, it is we that will be smoked out and burned. Head woman of Kadest, hear me. It's time, I think, that I go back to my own land, to those that are in exile and those that are enslaved. Tell any people who dream of a city burning to come after me to Brother. He bowed to Ebor Dendep and left the birch grove, still walking lame, his arm bandaged. Yet there was a quickness to his walk, a poise to his head that made him seem more whole than other men. The young people followed quietly after him. Who is he? The man to whom your message came, Selvar of Eshreth, a god among us. Tell your people in treethat of him. The son of forest fire, the brother of the murdered, he is the one who is not reborn. Now go on, all of you, go on to the lodge. See who'll be going with Selvar. See about food for them to carry. Let me be a while. I'm as full of foreboding as a stupid old man. I must dream." Horomena went with Selver that night as far as the place where they first met, under the copper willows by the stream. Many people were following Selver south, some sixty in all, as great a troop as most people had ever seen on the move at once. They would cause great stir and thus gather many more to them on their way to the sea-crossing to Sornal. Selver had claimed his dreamer's privilege of solitude for this one night. He was setting off alone. His followers would catch up in the morning he would have little time for the slow and deep running of the great dreams. Here we met, and here we part. This will be called Selver's Grove, no doubt, by the people who walk our paths hereafter. You are surer of me than I am. Yes, I'm sure, Selver. I was well taught in dreaming, and then I'm old. I dream very little for myself anymore. Why should I? Little is new to me. I'm an old hollow tree, only the roots live, and so I dream only what all men dream. I have no visions and no wishes. I see what is. I see the fruit ripening on the branch. Four years it has been ripening, that fruit of the deep-planted tree. We have all been afraid for four years. Even we who live far from the human cities and have only glimpsed them from hiding or seen their ships fly over or looked at the dead places where they cut down the world. We are all afraid. Children wake from sleep crying of giants. Women will not go far on their trading journeys. Men in the lodges cannot sing. The fruit of fear is ripening, and I see you gather it. All that we fear to know you have seen, you have known. Exile, shame, pain, the roof and walls of the world fallen, the mother dead in misery, the children untaught. This is a new time for the world, a bad time, and you have suffered it all. You have gone farthest, and at the end of the black path there grows the tree where the fruit ripens. Now, Selver, you gather it and the world changes wholly. When a man holds in his hand the fruit of that tree whose roots are deeper than the forest, men will know it. They will know you as we did. It doesn't take an old man or a great dreamer to recognize a god. Where you go, fire burns. But listen, Silver. This is what I see that perhaps others do not. This is why I have loved you. I dreamed of you before we met here. You were walking on a path, and behind you the young trees grew up, oak and birch, willow and holly, white flowering ash, all the roof and walls of the world forever renewed. Now farewell, dear God and son. Go safely. The night darkened as Selver went until even his night-seeing eyes saw nothing but masses and plains of black. It began to rain. He had gone only a few miles from Cadist when he must either light a torch or halt. He chose to halt, and groping found a place among the roots of a great chestnut tree. There he sat, his back against the broad, twisting bowl that seemed to hold a little warmth in it still. The fine rain, falling unseen in darkness pattered on the leaves overhead, on his arms and neck and head protected by their thick, silky hair, on the earth and ferns and undergrowth nearby, on all the leaves of the forest, near and far. Selver sat as quiet as the grey owl on a branch above him, unsleeping, his eyes wide open in the rainy dark. Captain Raj Lubov had a headache. It began softly and mounted crescendo to a smashing drumbeat over his right ear. What would the Athsheans do for a migraine? They wouldn't have one. They would have daydreamed the tensions away a week before they got them. Try it. Try daydreaming. Begin as Selver taught you. Although knowing nothing of electricity, he could not really grasp the principle of the EEG. As soon as he heard about alpha waves and when they appear, he had said, Oh, yes, you mean this. And there appeared the unmistakable alpha squiggles on the graph recording, what went on inside his small green head, and he had taught Lyubov how to turn on and off the alpha rhythms in one half hour session. There really was nothing to it, but not now. The world is too much with us. For the Athsheans had burned Smith Camp day before yesterday and killed 200 men, 207 to be precise, every man alive except the captain. Nearly five e years here and he had believed the Athchians to be incapable of killing men, his kind or their kind. He had written long papers to explain how and why they couldn't kill men. All wrong. Dead wrong. What had he failed to see? It was nearly time to be going over to the meeting at HQ. Cautiously, Liubov stood up, moving all in one piece so that the right side of his head would not fall off. He approached his desk with the gait of a man underwater, poured out a shot of vodka, and drank it. It turned him inside out. It extroverted him. It normalized him. He felt better. He went out and started to walk down the long dusty Main Street of Centralville to HQ. Passing the Luau, he thought with greed of another vodka, but Captain Davison was just going in the door and Lyubov went on. The people from the Shackleton were already in the conference room. Commander Jung, whom he had met before, had brought some new faces down from orbit this time. They were not in Navy uniform. After a moment, Lyubov recognized them, with a slight shock, as non-Terran humans. He sought an introduction at once. One, Mr. Orr, was a hairy Satian, dark grey, stocky, and dour. The other, Mr. Lepenin, was tall, white, and comely, a Hainishman. They greeted Lyubov with interest, and Lepenin said, I have just been reading your report on the conscious control of paradoxical sleep among the Athians, Dr. Lyubov. It was pleasant to be called by his own earned title of doctor. Their conversation indicated that they had spent some years on Earth and that they might be hilfers or something like it, but the commander introducing them had not mentioned their status or position. The room was filling up. Gossa, the colony ecologist, came in. So did all the high brass. So did Captain Susan, head of planetary development, logging operations whose captaincy, like Lyubov's, was an invention necessary to the peace of the military mind. Captain Davison came in alone, straight-backed and handsome, his lean, rugged face calm and rather stern. Guards stood at all the doors. The conference was plainly an investigation. Whose fault? My fault, Lyubov thought despairingly. But out of his despair, he looked across the table at Captain Don Davison with detestation and contempt. Commander Young had a very quiet voice. As you know, gentlemen, my ship stopped here at World forty one to drop you off a new load of colonists, and nothing more. Shackleton's mission is to World eighty eight, Prestno, one of the Hainish group. However, this attack on your outpost camp, since it chanced to occur during our week here, can't be simply ignored particularly in the light of certain developments, which you would have been informed of a little later in the normal course of events. The fact is that the status of World 41 as an Earth colony is now subject to revision, and the massacre at your camp may precipitate the administration's decisions on it. Certainly the decisions we can make must be made quickly, for I can't keep my ship here long." First, we wish to make sure that the relevant facts are all in the possession of those present. Captain Davison's report on the events at Smith camp was heard by us all. Now, if there are questions any of you wish to ask Captain Davison, go ahead. I have one myself. You returned to the site of the camp the following day, Captain Davison, in a large hopper with eight soldiers. Had you the permission of a senior officer here at Central for that flight? I did, sir. Were you authorized to land and set fires in the forest near the campsite? No, sir. Did you, however, set fires? I did, sir. I was trying to smoke out the creatures that killed my men. Very well. Mr. Le Penon? Captain Davison, do you think that the people under your command at Smith camp were mostly content? Yes, I do. Davison's manner was firm and forthright. He seemed indifferent to the fact that he was in trouble. Of course, these Navy officers and foreigners had no authority over him. It was to his own colonel that he must answer for losing 200 men and making unauthorized reprisals. But his colonel was right there, listening. They were all well-fed, well-housed, not overworked, as well as can be managed in a frontier camp? Yes. Was the discipline very harsh? No, it was not. What, then, do you think motivated the revolt. I don't understand. If none of them were discontented, why did some of them massacre the rest and destroy the camp? There was a worried silence. May I put in a word? It was the native Hilfs, the Athsians employed in the camp, who joined with an attack by the forest people against the Terran humans. In his report, Captain Davison referred to the Athsians as Creechies, Thank you, Dr. Lubov. I misunderstood entirely. Actually, I took the word Creechy to stand for a Terran caste that did rather menial work in the logging camps. Believing, as we all did, that the Athchians were intraspecies non-aggressive, I never thought they might be the group meant. In fact, I didn't realise that they cooperated with you in your camps. However, I am more at a loss than ever to understand what provoked the attack and mutiny. I don't know, sir. When he said the people under his command were content, did the captain include native people? Were the Athsians living at the camp content, do you think? As far as I know. There was nothing unusual in their position there, or the work they had to do? Liubar felt the heightening of tension in Colonel Dong and his staff, and also in the starship commander. Davison remained calm and easy. Nothing unusual? Lyubov knew now that only his scientific studies had been sent up to the Shackleton. His protests, even his annual assessments of native adjustment to colonial presence, required by the administration, had been kept in some desk drawer deep in HQ. These two knew nothing about the exploitation of the Athsheans. Commander Young did, of course. He had been down before today and had probably seen the Creechy pens. In any case, a Navy commander on colony runs wouldn't have much to learn about Terran-Hilf relations. Whether or not he approved of how the colonial administration ran its business, not much would come as a shock to him. But a Sation and a Hainishman, how much would they know about Terran colonies unless chance brought them to one on the way to somewhere else? Le Penin and Orr had not intended to come on-planet here at all. Or possibly they had not been intended to come on-planet but hearing of trouble had insisted. Why had the commander brought them down, his will or theirs? Whoever they were, they had about them a hint of authority. Lyubov's headache had gone. He felt alert and excited. His face was rather hot. Captain Davison, I have a couple of questions concerning your confrontation with the four natives day before yesterday. You're certain that one of them was Sam or Silverthella? I believe so. You're aware that he has a personal grudge against you? I don't know. You don't? Since his wife died in your quarters immediately subsequent to sexual intercourse with you, he holds you responsible for her death. You didn't know that? He attacked you once before here in Centralville. You had forgotten that? But well, the point is that Selver's personal hatred for Captain Davison may serve as a partial explanation or motivation for this unprecedented assault. The Athsheans aren't incapable of personal violence. Has never been asserted in any of my studies of them. Adolescents who haven't mastered controlled dreaming or competitive singing do a lot of wrestling and fist-fighting, not all of it good-tempered. But Selber is an adult and an adept. And his first personal attack on Captain Davison, which I happened to witness part of, was certainly an attempt to kill. As was the captain's retaliation, incidentally. At the time, I thought that attack, an isolated psychotic incident, resulting from grief and stress, not likely to be repeated. I was wrong. Captain, when the four Atheans jumped you from ambush, as you describe in your report, did you end up prone on the ground? Yes. In what position? Davison's calm face tensed and stiffened, and Lyubov felt a pang of compunction. He wanted to corner Davison in his lies, to force him into speaking truth once, but not to humiliate him before others. Accusations of rape and murder supported Davison's image of himself as the totally virile man, but now that image was endangered. Lubov had called up a picture of him, the soldier, the fighter, being knocked down by enemies the size of six-year-olds. I was on my back. Was your head thrown back or turned aside? I don't know. I'm trying to establish a fact here, Captain one that might help explain why Selver didn't kill you, although he had a grudge against you and had helped kill two hundred men a few hours earlier. I wondered if you might by chance have been in one of the positions which, when assumed by an Athean, prevent his opponent from further physical aggression. I don't know. Lyubov glanced around the conference table. All the faces showed curiosity and tension These aggression-halting gestures and positions may have some innate basis, may rise from a surviving trigger response, but they are socially developed and learned. The strongest of them is a prone position on the back, eyes shut, head turned, so the throat is fully exposed. I think an Atshian might find it impossible to hurt an enemy who took that position. He would have to do something else to release his anger or aggressive drive. When they had all got you down, Captain did Silver by any chance sing? Did he what? Sing? I don't know. Luboff was about to shrug and give up when the Satian said, Why, Mr. Luboff?" The most winning characteristic of the rather harsh Satian temperament was curiosity, inopportune and inexhaustible curiosity. Sations died eagerly, curious as to what came next. You see, the Athcians use a kind of ritualized singing to replace physical combat. Again, it's a universal social phenomenon that might have a physiological foundation. The higher primates here all go in for vocal competing between two males, a lot of howling and whistling. The dominant male may finally give the other a cough, but usually they just spend an hour or so trying to outbellow each other. The Atheans themselves see the similarity to their singing matches, which are also only between males. But as they observe, theirs are not only aggression releases, but an art form. The better artist wins. I wondered if Selver sang over Captain Davison, and if so, whether he did because he could not kill or because he preferred the bloodless victory. These questions have suddenly become rather urgent. Dr. Lyubov... How effective are these aggression-channeling devices? Are they universal? Among adults, yes. All my observations supported them until day before yesterday. Rape, violent assault, and murder virtually don't exist among them. There are accidents, of course, and there are psychotics, but not many. What do they do with dangerous psychotics? Isolate them on small islands. The Athians are carnivorous. They hunt animals. Yes, meat is a staple. Wonderful! A human society with an effective war barrier. What's the cost, Dr. Lubov? I'm not sure, Mr. Le Penen. Perhaps change? They're a static, stable, uniform society. They have no history. Perfectly integrated and wholly unprogressive. You might say that, like the forest they live in, they've attained a climax state, but I don't mean to imply they're incapable of adaptation.' Gentlemen, this is very interesting, but in a somewhat specialist frame of reference, and it may be somewhat out of the context which we are attempting to clarify here. Uh, no, excuse me, Colonel Dong, this may be the point. Yes, Dr. Lubov. Well, I wonder that they're not proving their adaptability now by adapting their behavior to us, to the colony. For four years they've behaved to us as they do to one another. Despite the physical differences, they recognized us as members of their species, as men. However, we have not responded as members of their species should respond. We have ignored the responses, the rights and obligations of nonviolence. We have killed, raped and enslaved the native humans, destroyed their communities and cut down their forests. It wouldn't be surprising if they decided that we were not human and therefore can be killed like animals. Captain Luboff is expressing his personal opinions and theories, which I consider possibly to be erroneous, and he and I have discussed this type of thing previously, although the present context is unsuitable. We do not employ slaves, sir. Some of the natives serve a useful role in our community. The Voluntary Labour Corps is a part of all but the temporary camps here. We have very limited personnel to accomplish our tasks here, and we need workers and use all we can get, but on any kind of basis that could be called a slavery basis, certainly not. Uh, How many of each race? Twenty-six hundred Terrans now. Lyubov and I estimate the native Hilf population very roughly at three million. You should have considered these statistics, gentlemen, before you altered the native traditions. We are adequately armed and equipped to resist any type of aggression these natives could offer. However, there was a general consensus by both the first exploratory missions and by our own research staff of specialists, here headed by Captain Luboff, giving us to understand that the new Tahitians were a primitive, harmless, peace-loving species. Now, this information was obviously erroneous, obviously... You consider the human species to be primitive, harmless, and peace-loving? No, but you knew that the hilfs of this planet are human, as human as you or I, since we all come from the same original Hainish stock? That is a scientific theory, I am aware. Colonel, it is the historic fact. I am not forced to accept it as fact, and I don't like opinions stuffed into my own mouth. The fact is that these creatures are a metre tall, they're covered with green fur, they don't sleep, and they're not human beings in my frame of reference. Captain Davison, do you consider the native hilfs human or not? I don't know. But you had sexual intercourse with one, this Selver's wife. Would you have sexual intercourse with a female animal? What about the rest of you? the commander of the Shackleton at last salvaged words from the gulf of embarrassed silence. Well, gentlemen, the tragedy at Smith camp clearly is involved with the entire colony-native relationship, and it is not by any means an insignificant or isolated episode. That's what we had to establish. And this being the case, we can make a certain contribution towards easing your problems here. The main purpose of our journey was not to drop off a couple of hundred girls here, though I know you've been waiting for them, but to get to Presno, which has been having some difficulties, and give the government there an Ansible, that is, an ICD transmitter. Stares became fixed all round the table. The one we have aboard is an early model, and it cost a planetary annual revenue, roughly. That, of course, was twenty-seven years ago, planetary time, when we left Earth. Nowadays they are making them relatively cheaply. They're standard equipment on Navy ships, and in the normal course of things, a robo or a manned ship would be coming out here to give your colony one. As a matter of fact, it's a manned administration ship, and is on the way due here in 9.4 E years, if I recall the figure. Mr. Le Penin, your people invented the device, perhaps you would explain it to those here who are unfamiliar with the terms. I shall not attempt to explain the principles of ansible operation to those present. Its effect can be stated simply. The instantaneous transmission of a message over any distance. One element must be on a large mass body. The other can be anywhere in the cosmos.' Since arrival in orbit, the Shackleton has been in daily communication with Terra, now 27 light-years distant. The message does not take 54 years for delivery in response, as it does on an electromagnetic device. It takes no time. There is no more time gap between worlds. Yeah, as soon as we came out of time dilatation into planetary space-time here, we rang up home, as you might say and we were told what had happened during the twenty-seven years we were travelling. The time gap for bodies remains, but the information lag does not. As you can see, this is important to us as an interstellar species, as speech itself was to us earlier in our evolution. It will have the same effect, to make a society possible. Uh, Mr. Orr and I left Earth twenty-seven years ago as legates for our respective governments, When we left, people were talking about the possibility of forming some kind of league among the civilised worlds, now that communication was possible. The League of Worlds now exists. It has existed for eighteen years. Mr. Orr and I are now emissaries of the Council of the League, and so have certain powers and responsibilities we did not have when we left Earth. The three of them from the ship kept saying these things. An instantaneous communicator exists. An interstellar supergovernment exists, believe it or not. Are we to take all, all this simply, on your word, sir? Colonel Dung knew he shouldn't believe Le Penin and Orr and Young, but did believe them and was frightened. No, that's done with. A colony like this had to believe what passing ships and outdated radio messages told them. Now you don't. You can verify. "'We are going to give you the Ansible destined for Presno. "'We have League authority to do so, received, of course, by Ansible. "'Your colony here is in a bad way, worse than I thought from your reports. "'Now, however, you'll have the Ansible, "'and can talk with your Terran administration. "'You can ask for orders, so you'll know how to proceed. "'Given the profound changes that have been occurring "'in the organisation of the Terran government since we left there, "'I should recommend that you do so at once.' There is no longer any excuse for acting on outdated orders, for irresponsible autonomy. Le Penin was being overbearing, and Commander Young should shut him up. But could he? How did an emissary of the Council of the League of Worlds rank? Who's in charge here? thought Lyubov. And he too felt a qualm of fear. His headache returned, a sort of tight headband over the temple's. An officer, Benton, was asking Le Penin if he or Or were on this planet as observers for the League of Worlds, or if they claimed any authority to... Le Penin took him up politely. We are observers here, not empowered to command, only to report. You are still answerable only to your own government on Earth. When nothing has essentially changed. You forget the Ansible. I'll instruct you in its operation, Colonel, as soon as this discussion is over. You can then consult with your colonial administration. Yeah, since your problem here is rather urgent, and since Earth is now a League member and may have changed the colonial code somewhat during recent years, Mr. Orr's advice is both proper and timely. We should be very grateful to Mr. Orr and Mr. Le Penin for their decision to give this Terran colony the answerable destin for Prestno. It was their decision. I can only applaud it. Now, one more decision remains to be made, and this one I have to make, using your judgment as my guide. If you feel the colony is in imminent peril of further and more massive attacks from the natives, I can keep my ship here for a week or two as a defence arsenal. I can also evacuate the women. No children yet, right? I have space for 380 passengers. We might crowd a hundred more in. The extra mass would add a year or so to the trip home, but it could be done. Unfortunately, that is all I can do. We must proceed to Presno, your nearest neighbor, as you know, 1.8 light years distant. We can stop here on the way home to Terra, but that's going to be three and a half more e years at least. Can you stick it out? Yes, we've had warning now and we won't be caught napping again. Equally, can the native inhabitants stick it out for three and a half Earth years more? Yes. No. Duboff had been watching Davison's face, and a kind of panic had taken hold of him. Colonel, we've been here four years now, and the natives are flourishing. There's room enough to spare for all of us. As you can see, the planet's heavily underpopulated, and the administration wouldn't have cleared it for colonization purposes if that hadn't been as it is. They won't catch us off guard again. We were erroneously briefed concerning the nature of these natives, but we are fully armed and able to defend ourselves. But we aren't planning any reprisals. That is expressly forbidden in the colonial code, though I don't know what new rules this new government may have added on, but we'll just stick to our own as we have been doing. And they definitely negate mass reprisals or genocide. We won't be sending any messages for help out... After all, a colony twenty-seven light-years from home has come out expecting to be on its own, and in fact to be completely self-sufficient. And I don't see that the ICD really changes that. Ship and men and material still have to travel at near light speed. We'll just keep on shipping the lumber home and look out for ourselves. The women are in no danger. Mr. Lyubov, we've been here four years. I don't know if the native human culture will survive four more. As for the total land ecology, I think Gossi will back me if I say that we've irrecoverably wrecked the native life systems on one large island, have done great damage on this subcontinent Sorenol, and if we go on logging at the present rate, may reduce the major habitable lands to desert within ten years. This isn't the fault of the colony's HQ or Forestry Bureau. They've simply been following a Development plan drawn up on Earth without sufficient knowledge of the planet to be exploited, its life systems, or its native human inhabitants. Uh, Mr. Gosser Well, Raj, you're stretching things a bit. There's no denying that Dump Island, which was overlogged in direct contravention to my recommendations, is a dead loss. If more than a certain percentage of the forest is cut over a certain area, then the fiber weed doesn't recede, you see and the fibre-weed root system is the main soil-binder on clear land. Without it the soil drifts off very fast under wind erosion and the heavy rainfall. But I can't agree that our basic directives are at fault, so long as they are scrupulously followed. They were based on careful study of the planet. We have succeeded here on Central by following the plan. Erosion is minimal, and the cleared soil is highly arable. To log off a forest doesn't, after all, mean to make a desert. We can't forecast precisely how the native forest life systems will adapt to a new woodland prairie foreseen in the development plan, but we know the chances are good for a large percentage of adaptation and survival. That's what the Bureau of Land Management said about Alaska during the first famine. How many Sitka spruce have you seen in your lifetime, Gossa? Or snowy owl, or wolf, or Eskimo? The survival percentage of native Alaskan species in habitat after 15 years of the development program was 0.3%. It's now zero. A forest ecology is a delicate one. If the forest perishes, its fauna may go with it. The Athean word for world is also the word for forest. I submit, Commander Young, that though the colony may not be an imminent danger, the planet is Captain Lubolf. I cannot tolerate any further such attempts as this to give advice without previous clearance. Caught off guard by his own outburst, Lyubov apologized and tried to look calm. If only he didn't lose his temper, if he had poise. It appears to us that you made some serious erroneous judgments concerning the non-aggressiveness of the natives here, and because we counted on this specialist description of them as non-aggressive is why we left ourselves open to this terrible tragedy at Smith camp, Captain Luboff. So I think we have to wait until some other specialists in Hilfs have had time to study them, because evidently your theories were basically erroneous to some extent. Luboff sat and took it. Let the men from the ship see them all passing the blame around like a hot brick, all the better. The more dissension they showed, the likelier were these emissaries to have them checked and watched over. And he was to blame. He had been wrong. To hell with my self-respect so long as the forest people get a chance, Lyubov thought. And so strong a sense of his own humiliation and self-sacrifice came over him that tears rose to his eyes. He was aware that Davison was watching him, he sat up stiff, the blood hot in his face, his temples drumming. Couldn't Orr and Le Penin see what kind of man Davison was? And how much power he had here, while Uboff's powers called advisory were simply derisory? If the colonists were left to go on with no check on them but a super radio, the Smith Camp Massacre would almost certainly become the excuse for systematic aggression against the natives. Bacteriological extermination, most likely. The Shackleton would come back in three and a half years to find new Tahiti and find a thriving Terran colony, and no more creechy problem, none at all. The conference did not last much longer. When it ended, he stood up and leaned across the table to Le Penin. You must tell the League to do something to save the forests, the forest people. You must, please. You must. The Hainishman met his eyes. His gaze was reserved, kindly, and deep as a well. He said nothing. It was unbelievable. They had all gone insane. This damned alien world had sent them all right round the bend into bye-bye dreamland along with the Creeches. He still couldn't believe what he'd seen at that conference and the briefing after it. A Starfleet ship's commander bootlicking two humanoids engineers and techs ooing over a fancy radio presented to them by a hairy station with a lot of sneering and boasting as if ICDs hadn't been predicted by Terran science years ago. The humanoids had stolen the idea and called it an Ansible so nobody would recognize it was just an ICD. But the worst part of it had been the conference, with that psycho Luboff raving and crying and Colonel Dung letting him do it, letting him insult Davison and HQ staff and the whole colony, and all the time the two aliens sitting and grinning, a little grey ape and the big white fairy sneering at humans. It had been pretty bad. Hadn't got any better since the Shackleton left. He didn't mind being sent down to New Java Camp under Major Mohammed. The colonel had to discipline him. Old Ding Dong might actually be very happy about that fire raid he had pulled in reprisal on Smith Island, but the raid had been a breach of discipline, and he had to reprimand Davison. All right, rules of the game. But what wasn't in the rules was this stuff coming over that overgrown TV set they called the Ansible, their new little tin god at HQ. Orders from the Bureau of Colonial Administration in Karachi, restrict terran Athsian contact to occasions arranged by Athsians. In other words, you couldn't go into a creechy warren and round up a workforce anymore. Employment of volunteer labor is not advised. Employment of forced labor is Forbidden. How in the hell were they supposed to get the work done? Did Earth want this wood, or didn't it? They were still sending the robot cargo ships to New Tahiti, weren't they? For a year, each carrying about 30 million new dollars worth of prime lumber back to Mother Earth. Sure, the development people wanted those millions. They were businessmen. These messages weren't coming from them. Any fool could see that. The colonial status of World 41, why didn't they call it New Tahiti anymore, is under consideration. Until decision is reached, colonists should observe extreme caution in all dealings with native inhabitants. The use of weapons of any kind except small sidearms carried in self-defense is absolutely forbidden. Just as on Earth. Except that there a man couldn't even carry sidearms anymore. What the hell was the use of coming 27 light-years to a frontier world and then get told no guns? No fire jelly, no bug bombs, just sit like nice little boys and let the creatures come spit in your faces and sing songs at you and then stick a knife in your guts and burn down your camp, but don't you hurt the cute little green fellers. No, sir. A policy of avoidance is strongly advised. A policy of aggression or retaliation is strictly forbidden. That was the gist of all the messages, actually, and any fool could tell that that wasn't the colonial administration talking. They couldn't have changed that much in thirty years. It was clear to anybody who hadn't gone splaw from Geoshock that the Ansible messages were phonies. There weren't any men typing the answers onto the other end of that little trick. They were aliens, humanoids, probably Satians, for the machine was Satian made, and they were a smart bunch of devils. They were the kind that might make a real bid for interstellar supremacy. The Hainish would be in the case, were strong enough to make an armed takeover. But their plan for New Tahiti was easy to see. They'd let the creechies wipe out the humans for them. Just tie the humans' hands with a lot of fake, ansible directives and let the slaughter begin. And Colonel Dong had swallowed it. He intended to obey orders. He was stupid, old Ding Dong, but he liked Davison, and Davison liked him. If it meant betraying the human race to an alien conspiracy, then he couldn't obey his orders, but he still felt sorry for the old soldier. A fool, but a loyal and brave one not a born traitor like that whining, tattling prig Lyubov. If he could save the men and women of New Tahiti, he would. If he couldn't, he'd make a damn good try, and that was all there was to it, actually. It couldn't last long. The whole situation was too crazy to be stable. If they didn't start easing back to normal now the Shackleton was gone, then Captain D. Davison would just have to do a little extra work to get things headed back towards normalcy. The morning of the day he left Central, they had let loose the whole Creechy workforce, made a big noble speech in pigeon, opened the compound gates, and let out every single tame creechy carry maids the lot. Not one had stayed. Some of them had been with their masters ever since the start of the colony four e-years ago. But they had no loyalty. A dog, a chimp, would have hung around. These things weren't even that highly developed. Ding-dong was splah, letting all those creatures loose right in the vicinity. So if the wild creatures on Central were planning to imitate the Smith camp atrocity, they now had lots of real handy new recruits who knew the layout of the whole town, the routines, where the arsenal was, where guards were posted, and the rest. If Centralville got burned down, HQ could thank themselves. One thing, anyhow, whatever the phony directive said, the boys at Central wouldn't be stuck with trying to use small sidearms for self-defense. They had fire throwers and machine guns. The sixteen little hoppers had machine guns and were useful for dropping fire jelly from. The five big hoppers had full armament, but they wouldn't need the big stuff. Just take up a hopper over one of the deforested areas and catch a mess of creatures there with their damn bows and arrows and start dropping fire jelly and watch them run around and burn. Made his belly churn a little to imagine it, just like when he thought about making a woman or whenever he remembered about when that Sam creature had attacked him and he had smashed in his whole face with four blows, one right after another. New Java was the southernmost of the five big lands, just north of the equator, and so was hotter than Central or Smith, which were just about perfect climate-wise. It rained all the time in the wet seasons anywhere on New Tahiti, but in the northern lands it was a kind of quiet, fine rain that went on and on and never really got you wet or cold. Down here it came in buckets, and there was a monsoon-type storm that you couldn't even walk in, let alone work in. The damn forest was so thick it kept out the storms. You'd get wet from all the dripping off the leaves, of course, but if you were really inside the forest during one of those monsoons, you'd hardly notice the wind was blowing, and inside the forest it was dark and hot and easy to get lost. The C.O., Major Mohammed, was a sticky bastard. Everything was done by the book. The logging all in kilo strips the fiberweed crap planted in the log strips, leave to Central granted in strict non-preferential rotation, hallucinogens rationed and their use on duty punished, and so on and so on. However, one good thing about Muhammad was he wasn't always radioing Central. New Java was his camp, and he ran it his way. He didn't like orders from HQ. He obeyed them all right. He'd let the Creeches go, and locked up all the guns except little popgun pistols as soon as the orders came. But he was a self-righteous type. Knew he was right. That was his big fault. He thought he knew better than Davison, and that was that. They were all a bit sticky at first, actually. None of these men at New Java knew anything about the Smith camp atrocity, except that the Camp CO had left for Central an hour before it happened, and so was the only human that escaped alive. Put like that, it did sound bad. You could see why at first it looked at him like a kind of Jonah, or worse, a kind of Judas even. But when they got to know him, they'd know better. They'd begin to see that, far from being a deserter or traitor, he was dedicated to preventing the colony of New Tahiti from betrayal. And they'd realized that getting rid of the Creechies was going to be the only way to make this world safe for the Terran way of life. It wasn't too hard to start getting that message across to the loggers. They never liked the little green rats, having to drive them to work all day and guard them all night, and now they began to understand that the creatures were not only repulsive but dangerous. When Davison told them what he had found at Smith, when he explained how the two humanoids on the fleet ship had brainwashed HQ, when he showed them that wiping out the Terrans on New Tahiti was just a small part of the whole alien conspiracy against Earth, when he reminded them of the cold, hard figures, twenty-five hundred humans to three million creatures... Then they began to really get behind him.